Lesson 5 for July 28 through to August 3, ready for teaching on August 4, The Conversion of Paul. Sabbath afternoon, July 28. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, each of us has come to know you and know Jesus through various ways, but today we're going to study about the most spectacular way where Saul actually met Jesus. We pray that we may have that personal touch from him as well in our lives. As we open your word, may your Holy Spirit guide us that we may see the lovely Jesus and know what he wants for us and from us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Acts chapter 9 and verse 15. Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Let's read that again, Acts chapter 9 and verse 15. Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, was one of the most remarkable events in the history of the Apostolic Church. The importance of Paul, however, goes way beyond conversion itself, for Paul is certainly not the only enemy of the Church to have become a genuine Christian. The issue instead relates to what he ended up doing for the sake of the Gospel. Paul had been an incorrigible opponent to the early believers, and the harm he could have done to the infant church was enormous. He had both determination and official support to destroy the church, yet he responded faithfully to God's call on the road to Damascus and became the greatest of the apostles. Ellen White writes in Sketches from the Life of Paul, page 9, From among the most bitter and relentless persecutors of the Church of Christ arose the ablest defender and most successful herald of the Gospel. Paul's previous actions in persecuting the early Church always would bring him a deep sense of his own unworthiness, though he could say with a still deeper sense of gratitude that God's grace to him had not been in vain. With Paul's conversion, Christianity changed forever. Sunday, July 29, Persecutor of the Church Paul was a Hellenistic Jew. His birthplace was Tarsus, the capital of Cilicia, as we read in Acts 21.39. I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Notwithstanding, to a certain extent, he deviated from the Hellenistic stereotype, for he was brought to Jerusalem where he studied under Gamaliel, as we read in Acts 22.3. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. Gamaliel was the most influential Pharisaic teacher at the time. As a Pharisee, 
Paul was strictly orthodox, though his zeal bordered on fanaticism, as we read in Galatians 1.14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. This is why he led Stephen to his death and became the key figure in the ensuing persecution. Question. Read Acts chapter 26 verses 9 through to 11. How did Paul describe his actions against the church? Acts 26 beginning at verse 9. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Paul says elsewhere, that the gospel was a stumbling block to the Jews in 1 Corinthians one twenty three, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Besides the fact that Jesus did not fit the traditional Jewish expectation of a kingly Messiah, they could by no means accept the idea that the one who had died on a cross could be God's Messiah. For the scripture says that anyone who is hung is under God's curse in Deuteronomy 21 and verse 23. And that reads, You must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day, because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. To the Jews, therefore, the crucifixion was in itself a grotesque contradiction. The clearest evidence that the church's claims about Jesus were false. Acts 9, verses 1 and 2, shows Saul of Tarsus in action against believers. Acts 9, beginning at verse 1, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Damascus was an important city about 135 miles or 216 kilometers north of Jerusalem, and it had a large Jewish population. The Jews living outside Judea were organized in a kind of network whose headquarters were in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, with the synagogues functioning as supporting centers for the local communities. There was constant communication between the Sanhedrin and such communities through letters normally carried by a Shaliah, one who is sent, from the Hebrew Shala to send. A Shaliah was an official agent appointed by the Sanhedrin to perform several religious functions. When Paul asked the high priest, the Sanhedrin's president, for letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, he became a Shaliah with authority to arrest any followers of Jesus and bring them to Jerusalem. As we read in Acts 26.12, On one of these journeys I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. In Greek, the equivalent to Shaliah is apostolos, 
from which the word apostle derives. Thus, before being an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul was an apostle of the Sanhedrin. So to finish the day, when was the last time you were zealous for or against something you later changed your mind about? What lessons should you have learned from that experience? Monday, July 30, on the Damascus Road. Question, read Acts chapter 9, verses 3 to 9. What happened when Paul was approaching Damascus? What is the significance of Jesus' words in Acts 9, verse 5? And also, look at Acts 26, verse 14. Acts 9, verses 3 to 9. As he neared Damascus on this journey... Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Paul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and did not eat or drink anything. And Acts chapter 26, verse 14. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. As Paul and his companions nears Damascus, the unexpected happened. About noon, they experienced an intensely bright light from heaven and a voice speaking. This was not merely a vision in the prophetic sense, but a divine manifestation aimed somewhat exclusively at Paul. His companions saw the light, yet only Paul was blinded. They heard the voice, yet only Paul understood it. The light was the divine glory of the risen Jesus who personally appeared to Paul at that moment. In Acts 22 and verse 14 we read, Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. Elsewhere, Paul insists that he had seen Jesus which made him equal to the Twelve as a witness of his resurrection and apostolic authority. He said that in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? And 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. The ensuing dialogue with Jesus struck Paul infinitely more than the light itself. Paul absolutely was convinced that by attacking the followers of Jesus of Nazareth, he was doing God's work in purifying Judaism from that dangerous and dreadful heresy. To his dismay, however, he learned not only that Jesus was alive, but also that by inflicting suffering on his believers, 
he was attacking Jesus himself. When speaking to Saul, Paul used a proverbial saying supposedly of Greek origin that Paul certainly was familiar with. In Acts 26 verse 14, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. The image is that of a yoke ox trying to move against the sharp stick used to guide it. When that happens, the animal only hurts itself even more. This saying may point to a struggle in Paul's mind. The Bible refers to this as the work of the Spirit in John 16 verses 8 through to 11. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin, because people do not believe in me, about righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer, and about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. That could go back to what happened with Stephen. Ellen White writes in Acts of the Apostles, page 112 and 113, Saul had taken a prominent part in the trial and conviction of Stephen, and the striking evidences of God's presence with the martyr had led Saul to doubt the righteousness of the cause he had espoused against the followers of Jesus. His mind was deeply stirred. In his perplexity, he appealed to those in whom wisdom and judgment he had full confidence. The arguments of the priests and rulers finally convinced him that Stephen was a blasphemer, that the Christ whom the martyred disciple had preached was an impostor, and that those ministering in holy office must be right. And so to finish the day, why is it wise to pay heed to your conscience? Tuesday, July 31, Ananias' visit. When he realised he was talking to Jesus himself, Saul asked the question that would give Jesus the opportunity he was looking for. What shall I do, Lord? That was Acts 22, verse 10. The question indicates contrition in view of his actions up to that moment. But more important, it expresses an unconditional willingness to let Jesus guide his life from then on. Taken to Damascus, Paul was to wait for further instructions. In Acts 9, verses 10 to 19, the Bible reveals how the Lord was working to prepare Saul of Tarsus for his new life as the Apostle Paul. Let's read that. Acts 9, beginning at verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. 
I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. In a vision, Jesus gave Ananias the assignment to visit Saul and lay his hands on him for the restoration of his sight. Ananias, however, already knew who Saul was, as well as how much of the brethren had suffered and even lost their lives because of him. He was also well informed of the very reason why Saul was in Damascus, and so surely he did not want to become Saul's first victim there. His hesitation was understandable. Yet what Ananias did not know was that Saul had just had a personal encounter with Jesus that changed his life forever. He did not know that instead of still working for the Sanhedrin, Saul, to Ananias's astonishment, just had been called by Jesus to work for him, which means that Saul was no longer an apostle of the Sanhedrin, but Jesus' chosen instrument to take the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. Question. Read Galatians chapter 1, verses 1, 11 and 12. What special claim does Paul make with regard to his apostolic ministry? Galatians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and verses 11 and 12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. In Galatians, Paul insists that he received his message and his apostleship directly from Jesus Christ, not from any human source. This does not necessarily contradict the role performed by Ananias in his call. When visiting him, Ananias just confirmed the commission Saul had already received on the Damascus road from Jesus himself. In fact, the change in Saul's life was so dramatic that no human cause can be assigned to it. Only divine intervention can explain how Saul's most obsessive opponent would suddenly embrace him as Saviour and Lord, leave everything, convictions, reputations, career behind, and become his most devoted and prolific apostle. So to finish the day, in what ways does Saul's conversion illustrate the operation of God's wonderful grace? What can you learn from his story concerning those in your life whom you doubt will ever come to true faith? Well,
Wednesday, August 1, the beginning of Paul's ministry. Acts chapter 9, verses 19 to 25, which we'll read shortly, gives the impression that after his conversion, Paul remained in Damascus for a while before returning to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 1.17, however, Paul adds that before going to Jerusalem, he went to Arabia, where he apparently lived in seclusion for a certain period. We read that in Galatians 1.17. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. In Acts of the Apostles, page 125, we read... Here in the solitude of the desert, Paul had ample opportunity for quiet study and meditation. Question, read Acts chapter 9, verses 20 to 25. How does Luke describe Paul's ministry in Damascus? How well did it go? Acts 9, beginning at verse 20. Once he had begun to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God, all those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Paul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Paul's original target when he left Jerusalem with letters from the high priest was the Jewish believers that had presumably sought refuge in the synagogues of Damascus. Now, after coming back from Arabia, he finally made it to the synagogues, not to arrest believers, but to increase their number, not to slander Jesus as an imposter, but to present him as the Messiah of Israel. What must have gone on in the minds of those who, having heard of him only as one of their persecutors, now hear him witness about Jesus? What could they do but marvel at what Saul of Tarsus had become and at what he was doing for the church? They probably had no idea of the influence this new convert would eventually have. Not able to contradict Paul, Some of his opponents conspired together to take his life. Paul's account of the episode in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 suggests that his opponents denounced him to the local authorities in order to achieve their intent. Let's read about that in 2 Corinthians 11 verses 32 to 33. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. However, with the believer's help, Paul was able to escape in a basket, possibly through the window of a house built on the city wall. Paul knew from the start that he would face challenges, as we read in Acts 9.16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Opposition 
Persecution and suffering from various sources would be a constant in his ministry, but nothing would shake his faith or sense of duty, despite the hardships and trials that he faced practically at every step of his new life in Christ, as we read in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. So to finish today, despite struggles and opposition, Paul didn't give up. How can we learn to do the same when it comes to faith? That is, how to persevere amid discouragement and opposition. Thursday, August 2, Returning to Jerusalem Having escaped from Damascus, Paul returned to Jerusalem for the first time since he had left as a persecutor. This happened three years after his conversion, as we read in Galatians 1, verse 18. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him fifteen days. Remember that fifteen days. It was not an easy return, as he faced problems both inside and outside the church. Question. Read Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through to 30. What happened to Paul when he arrived in Jerusalem? Acts 9, beginning at verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and worked about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. In Jerusalem, Paul tried to join the apostles. Though by that time he already had been a Christian for three years, the news of his conversion sounded so incredible that the apostles, like Ananias before them, were rather sceptical. They feared it was just part of a carefully elaborated plot. It was Barnabas, a Levite from Cyprus, Acts 4, 36 and 37 tells us that, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Thus, Barnabas was a Hellenist, who broke the apostles' resistance and introduced Paul to them. They, too, must have marvelled at what God had done to Paul. That is, once they realised that he was genuine. Such resistance, however, would never entirely disappear if not because of Paul's past actions in persecuting the church, then at least because of the gospel he preached. As in the case of Stephen, 
The Judean believers, including the apostles, were quite slow to understand the universal scope of the Christian faith, a faith no longer based in the Old Testament ceremonial system, especially in the sacrificial system, which had lost its validity with Jesus' death on the cross. Paul's closest circle of relationship within the church in Judea would always be the Hellenistic believers. Besides Barnabas himself, it included Philip, one of the seven, as we read in Acts 28, 27, verse 8. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. And Benason, also from Cyprus, in verse 16. And that reads, Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasin, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. Several years later, the Jerusalem church leaders would still accuse Paul of preaching basically the same doctrine Stephen had preached before in Acts 21, verse 21. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. During the 15 days he stayed in Jerusalem, and we read that in Galatians 1.18, you'll remember. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. Paul apparently decided to share the gospel with the same non-believing Jews whom he had incited against Stephen some time before. As with Stephen, however, his efforts met with strong opposition, posing a threat to his own life. In a vision, Jesus told him to leave Jerusalem for his own safety. In Acts 22, beginning at verse 17, When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. With the help of the brethren, he went down to the city port of Caesarea, and from there to his hometown in Cilicia, where he would stay for several years before starting his missionary journeys. Friday, August 3. From the book Acts of the Apostles, page 124, we read, A general slain in battle is lost to his army, but his death gives no additional strength to the enemy. But when a man of prominence joins the opposing force, not only are his services lost, but those to whom he joins himself gain a decided advantage. Saul of Tarsus, on his way to Damascus, might easily have been struck dead by the Lord, and much strength would have been withdrawn from the persecuting power. But God in his providence not only spared Saul's life, 
but converted him, thus transferring a champion from the side of the enemy to the side of Christ. And from Sketches from the Life of Paul, page 38, Christ had commanded his disciples to go and teach all nations, but the previous teachings which they had received from the Jews made it difficult for them to fully comprehend the words of their master, and therefore they were slow to act upon them. They called themselves the children of Abraham, and regarded themselves as the heirs of divine promise. It was not until several years after the Lord's ascension that their minds were sufficiently expanded to clearly understand the intent of Christ's words, that they were to labour for the conversion of the Gentiles as well as of the Jews. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. 1. Dwell more on Jesus' question to Paul on the Damascus Road, Why do you persecute me? For Paul, this question was an indication that Jesus of Nazareth had indeed been resurrected from the dead. But more than that, it was also an indication of the spiritual identification that exists between Jesus and his church. We read about that in Matthew 24, verses 34 to 45. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about the day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man." For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch, and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them food at the proper time? The implication is obvious. Any harm done to the church is harm done to Jesus himself. In practical terms, what does this mean to us today? 2. Witnessing for Jesus involves suffering for Jesus. It is not by chance that the Greek word for witness, martys, M-A-R-T-Y-S, came to be associated with martyrdom. What does it mean to suffer for Jesus? And three, there's an old Latin saying, credo ut intelligam, which means, I believe in order that I may understand. How does this idea help us understand what happened to Saul of Tarsus? That is, before his conversion, before Paul became a believer in Jesus, he didn't understand. Only after his experience was he able to comprehend. What lesson can we draw from this for the times when we may find ourselves frustrated with those who don't believe in truths that seem so clear to us?
Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled Facebooking the Gospel, and it's by Andrew McChesney from Adventist Mission. South Koreans are among the most diligent Seventh-day Adventist gospel workers. Visit the Middle East and you will find faithful Koreans in Turkey and Lebanon. Koreans live in Africa and South America. Even remote places in Bangladesh and India have an active Korean presence. But despite this mission spirit, some young people in South Korea are struggling. The problem is connected with a cultural generation gap and Korea challenges in a country where Saturday is a work day. But derision from other Christians also hurts. While more than a quarter of South Korea's population of 51 million is Christian, Adventists represent a tiny minority. The Adventist church is dismissed as a cult and members are mockingly referred to as SDAs, a play on the church's acronym SDA. Six Adventist university students decided that they had seen enough. They created a Facebook group and an online radio station aimed at nurturing young fellow Adventists. Our focus is to reach young people who feel that they don't belong to mainstream Adventism, said Project co-founder Hansu Hyun, age 27, a graphic design student at church-owned Samyuk University in South Korea's capital, Seoul. Young Adventists have taken notice. The Facebook group, opened in 2014, has about 900 followers, a significant number for the Adventist church in South Korea. It offers colourful memes with vegetarian recipes and testimonies. For the testimonies, administrators interview young adults or sometimes a national actor who is Adventist, and the testimony is spread across five or more memes. A big hit was made with memes about Adventist war hero Desmond Doss during the theatrical release of Hacksaw Ridge. We have found that informal content like this is easy for young people to embrace, said Project co-founder Tegyun Bong, age 25, a theology major at Samyuk University. Young Adventists who have left the church have told us that they are finding healing through our ministry. The radio station linked to the Facebook group has the cheeky name Radio SDA in a nod to the slur toward Adventists, and it offers a two-hour weekly broadcast. Topics have included church youth leaders talking about how they spend Sabbath afternoons and a law school student discussing Sabbath challenges. Some 700 to 2,000 people tune in every week. Our whole project can be described in one word, Willingness, said co-founder Hoon Ho Kim, age 27, an English literature student. It's easy to become passive in our Christian life, but we are young people who are willing to act to have an impact on the Adventist community. Your reader for this week's Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide has been Dr. Percy Harold. It has been produced in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind, Distributed under the auspices of the Sabbath School Department by HopeChannel.com.